Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the election through the lens of billionaire politics. From the billionaire candidates in both parties, the candidates who have gotten to where they are explicitly by opposing billionaires, the billionaire heads of media organizations, and billionaire-friendly policies of establishment party members who are left with nothing but naked red-baiting in an attempt to stop Bernie Sanders. Clips today come from Late Night with Seth Meyers, Counterspin, Intercepted, Democracy Now!, and The Bugle. Bernie Sanders won the Nevada caucus in a landslide on Saturday, and now some pundits in the Democratic establishment are panicking about the possibility that he might be the Democratic nominee. For more on this, it's time for a closer look. <laughs> Bernie has now won the popular vote in the first three primary contests, making him the clear frontrunner, and now Politico is reporting that Bernie Sanders has sent the Democratic establishment into panic mode. And you can tell because the general tenor of the coverage on cable news has gone something like this. NBC News projects Bernie Sanders, the winner in Nevada. What the f- is going on? Pundits across cable news have been freaking out about Bernie's rise. For example, you might remember that after Bernie won the popular vote in Iowa and again in New Hampshire, the story wasn't that he was winning but that if you use pundit math, he was actually losing. I don't understand how Bernie is considered a frontrunner. In New Hampshire, 52% of voters wanted either uh, Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar or Joe Biden. Moderates are winning. Why wasn't Buttigieg's win in Iowa a bigger banner headline? He also has upset Bernie Sanders in both states. The story of the night. Amy Klobuchar, now in third place. The story of the Sanders campaign so far this year is how much ground he's lost from four years ago. That's right. By winning states, Bernie is actually losing ground. You see, as all expert pundits know, you don't want to win the first two. That's a rookie mistake, wherein you come off as needy, or as the kids would say, thirsty. You want to throw everyone off by losing a bunch of states, playing it cool off to the side until someone finally says, who's that fellow with zero delegates? No, seriously. No, seriously, who is that? Oh, all right. See, according to the pundits, uh, you don't want to actually win the first two states like Bernie did. You want to follow the Joe Biden path, coming fourth in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, and a distant second in Nevada. And on top of all that, just wander over during a crucial debate and give the front runner a hug, you know? It's the first time Biden ever hugged someone from an angle where they could see him coming. And not only... Did some pundits insist that Bernie wasn't actually the frontrunner after winning the first two states? They also created an elaborate mythology in their heads where Bernie was only winning because the so-called moderates were supposedly splitting the vote. And they kept insisting that if the moderates would just coalesce around one candidate, that candidate could beat Bernie. Bernie Sanders may have eked out the most votes in Iowa and New Hampshire. But if you look at the numbers more closely, it shows a candidate hitting a ceiling. If you look at the combined percentages among the centrist candidates, they do much better than the progressives. When you add up the, the totals, though, for Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Joe Biden, when you add them up last night, that's more than half the electorate backing a moderate. Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Biden split the moderate vote with their combined percentage overwhelming that of Sanders, who got 26 percent. That's right. If you just combine the votes of Buttigieg, Biden, and Klobuchar, you can beat Bernie. Now, all you have to do is find a way to genetically combine them into one candidate called the Klobu Biden Biden Charge. 
It's that easy. And then all... And then every time you ask it a question, it has the same answer. What should we do about health care? We must step forward into the future. I'm from Minnesota. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> but the reality is that most actual voters don't think like pundits. They don't divide candidates into a so-called liberal lane and a moderate lane. In fact, polls have shown that the top second choice among Biden voters is actually Bernie. And polls have also shown that Democratic voters are overwhelmingly satisfied with their choices. They don't divide them up into lanes. They like them each for their own reasons. They like Bernie for his consistency on issues like health care. They like Warren for taking on big fights against special interests like Wall Street. They like Biden for his eight years as Obama's VP. They like Buttigieg for his youthful charm and charisma. They like Klobuchar for a record in the Senate. And they like Bloomberg because he pays people to like him. <laughs> Still, before Nevada, many in the media were desperate to avoid calling Sanders the frontrunner. And in fairness, only two states, both of them mostly white, had voted. In fact, even Bernie bristled at the question of whether he was the frontrunner during a town hall on CNN. I think it was right before a, a New Hampshire primary. I asked you uh, after Iowa if you consider yourself the Democratic front runner. Uh, now after New Hampshire, do you? I, who cares? <laughs> if Bernie gets elected, his inauguration is just going to be a four-hour open house. Stop by, don't stop by. There'll be cheese and crackers, but you know, maybe eat before you come. <laughs> Say what you will. Say what you will about the guy, but he does not care about status. He has one suit that he irons by running it over with his car, I guess. He shoots layups with two hands, and he's been photographed in the middle seat and coach. And that is the only time he's been centrist. But even the pundits and Bernie himself could not deny his clear status as the frontrunner after an overwhelming victory in Nevada on Saturday, the first diverse state to vote in the primary in which Sanders seemed to win virtually every demographic. Sanders indeed won a smashing across-the-board victory, according to our entrance poll. He won among men and women, college graduates and non-college graduates, liberals and moderates-slash-conservatives, union and non-union members, people who decided early and people who decided late. In short, Sanders crushed it. Take a look here among self-described moderate or conservative Democrats. That's a third of this electorate in Nevada. This is what you're seeing. Sanders is actually leading. NBC Wall Street Journal poll asked, who are you most enthusiastic or comfortable about when it comes to the Democratic nominee? Bernie Sanders leads with 65%. He was powered by young voters, Hispanic voters, very liberal, and those who supported Medicare for all. Damn, he won union voters, non-union voters, young voters, Hispanic voters, men, women, liberals, and conservatives. And based on this photo, he even did well with former vice presidents over 70. <laughs> and yet still, cable news reacted with shock at Bernie's success in Nevada. For example, his results were coming in and it was clear that young voters and people of color were going overwhelmingly for Sanders. One anchor at a caucus site audibly sighed as she reported the results. Largely people of color of those, the majority, are Latino. And they are clearly, at least from eyeballing it, strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders with Joe Biden coming in second. Oh, my God, with the sigh. She's... She's reporting on Bernie winning a caucus site the way you tell your parents why your dip boyfriend got fired from his job. <laughs> he, uh, well, he was using the copier and, well, from eyeballing it, it looks like he, uh, he photocopied his ass and put it up in the break room. <laughs> and then... And then uh, prominent Democratic strategists and pundits started spitting out on live TV. James Carville, for example, has been showing up nonstop on MSNBC, warning 
that nominating Bernie would destroy the party and even suggesting that Russian President Vladimir Putin was rooting for him. It's going to be the end of days. So I am, I am scared to death. I really am. There's a certain part of the Democratic Party that wants us to be a cult. I'm not interested in being in a cult. I'm, I'm 75 years old. I'm just not a, I'm not a very culty person. I'm 75 years old. Why am I here doing this? Because I am scared to death. That's why. The happiest person right now is about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin. I promise you. He, he, he's probably staying up watching us right now. How you doing, Vlad? All right. <laughs> he's not watching, but if he was, he'd probably think this was a public access puppet show. Seriously, James Carville always looks like he was released naked into a Louisiana Goodwill and given five minutes to pick an outfit. <laughs> How's this hair look on me? How's this hair look on me? Bad? I'll take it. It's all squashed up like a bug on my head? Yeah. Like it's completely lost its shape? All right, I'll take it. And just as a reminder of Carville's track record, in 2008, he said then-Senator Barack Obama was unelectable and attacked him to the point where even Obama hit back and said James Carville is well-known for spouting off his mouth without always knowing what he's talking about. In fact, Obama was specifically responding to this comment Carville made about Hillary and Obama, and this is a real quote, if she gave him one of her cojones, they'd both have two. <laughs> All right, I'm having trouble following the logic here. So that means she was starting with three cojones? <laughs> And yes, somehow that wasn't even the most unhinged response to Bernie's win. Chris Matthews actually compared Bernie's victory in Nevada to the Nazi invasion of France during World War II. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill says, how can it be? You've got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling, I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart, and I think he's damn right on this one. As a general rule, anytime a man of Matthew's age starts a sentence with, I was reading last night about the fall of France in 1940, that's your cue to exit the conversation. <laughs> he's like your senile grandpa screaming into the phone on FaceTime. They banned me from the golf course for not fixing my divots. This is just like 1940 with the Nazis. All right, all right. Talk to you later, Grandpa. And somehow... Somehow, this isn't even the most insane thing Matthews has said about Bernie. After Bernie's win in New Hampshire, you might recall, Matthews went on another deranged tear that had something to do with communists executing him in Central Park or something. It was so incoherent, his fellow anchor Chris Hayes had to chime in to offer some sense. I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. And they go back to uh, the early 1950s. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there were the executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. That's, a, that's basically a capitalist country with a lot of good social welfare programs. Denmark is harmless. It's pretty clearly in the Denmark is category. He? Yeah. Are you sure? How do you know? Did he tell you that? Well, I mean, that's what he says, and that's what his agenda calls for. Just as a reminder, that whole thing started with this. I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. Chris Matthews is definitely a guy who says he'll share his thoughts with you in private and then talks to you in public for a full minute. I'll tell you what I think about this movie later in private. It sucks!
By the way, Bernie is not the first strong progressive candidate to come under fire from centrist pundits in the Democratic establishment. When Elizabeth Warren was soaring in the polls and seen as the frontrunner, we got story after story about how Wall Street and Democratic donors were panicking. Cable news shows rolled one clip after another of billionaires freaking out about her plans. And that's because they perceive both Bernie and Warren as threats to their livelihoods and their way of thinking. Regardless of how you feel about any particular candidates, if you're a pundit, you might want to ask why so many voters are flocking to Bernie Sanders. And yet... When you ask them if they're at least curious to find out why Bernie is doing so well, they say... Who cares? This has been A Closer Look. One imagines Chris Matthews was obliged by something other than human decency to apologize on air for comparing Bernie Sanders' victory in Nevada caucuses to the Nazi invasion of France. The question remains whether that's a cat you can really put back in the bag. Are MSNBC viewers meant to believe that Matthews' comments going forward are those of a thoughtful journalist doing responsible work? It's really not clear whether elite media know how vividly their election coverage is showing their hand. Despite day after day of reporting on hunger, homelessness, insulin rationing, children in cages, and devastating war, they are vehemently opposed to meaningful social change, even as relatively unradical, never mind overwhelmingly popular, as that represented by Senator Sanders. And they express that opposition through embarrassing journalistic choices. Like MSNBC platforming Bill Clinton advisor James Carville's rant, mocking the value of increasing voter turnout. The entire theory that by expanding the electorate, increasing turnout, you can win an election is the equivalent of climate denier, Carville said, adding... People say that they're as stupid to a political scientist as a climate denier is to an atmospheric scientist. That's just a fact. There's no denying it. Well, there is, of course. Turnout has varied over the last five presidential elections from a low of 50.3% in 2000 to a high of 58.2% in 2008, a difference of some 25 million votes, far more than the popular vote margin, even in a relative landslide like 2008. But Carville impressed MSNBC host Nicole Wallace, who replied, You're describing what sounds a lot like political suicide. I think we need a psychologist to understand that. Washington Post editorial page editor Fred Hyatt allotted himself some space to advance the idea that both Sanders and Donald Trump, quote, reject the reality of climate change, close quote. Yeah, see, Trump does that by rejecting the reality of climate change. But Sanders is Trump's mirror image in utter unseriousness because of the fantasy extremism of his climate plan, because, for example, it would ban fracking. Hyatt's sole source for his critique of Sanders' climate plan, incredibly enough, is an oil company CEO who offers such disinterested wisdom as change will not come from changing the source of supply. You have to reduce demand. Well, you might wonder how far elite media will carry their reporting distorting disaffection. Chris Matthews gives a clue. I'm wondering if Democratic moderates want Bernie Sanders to be president, he mused recently. Quote, do they want Bernie to take over the Democratic Party in perpetuity? Maybe they'd rather wait four years, 
and put in a Democrat that they like, close quote. Get it? After four more years of Donald Trump, Democratic voters will settle for anyone who's not Trump, like party and media elites think they ought to. Those harmed in the meantime are not, it seems, part of the equation. There was a guy, Bernie Sanders, who would have beaten Donald Trump. The polls show he would have walked away with it. But Hillary Clinton got the nomination for a variety of reasons. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has been absolutely bombarding the television, radio, internet airwaves with a nearly half billion dollar advertising blitz. And that's just the publicly reported number. Juntos vamos a reconstruir la nación. Soy Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg has already hired a staff of thousands of people across the country. That's more than most general election campaigns ever have. He's paying people to manufacture memes on his behalf. And we should also point out that Bloomberg didn't just come out of nowhere with this presidential run. He spent years pouring money into local and state candidates and organizations that he, wink, wink, knew would have to back him when he decided to pull the trigger and actually run. In some ways, it's sort of a clever and legalized form of bribery available only to the super rich. And it's pretty clear that it is a factor in why Bloomberg has gotten some mayors and lawmakers to publicly endorse him. And I can't shake the feeling that the tenor of some of the Bloomberg endorsements and ads They feel like we're in some scene from the Manchurian candidate as Bloomberg's well-known, well-documented, atrocious record on so many public policies is completely ignored or historically revised. Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Now, there are a lot of problems with many of the candidates running for the Democratic nomination, but there are major issues in Mike Bloomberg's personal, business, and political past that make him a uniquely atrocious candidate to offer up as the person to replace Donald Trump, or even as some sort of a acceptable alternative to Trump. But if there's anybody that has changed this city, it is Donald Trump. He really has done an amazing thing, and this is another part of it. Donald, thank you for your confidence. Michael Bloomberg has advocated economic policies that dehumanize and punish the working class. He's opposed increasing the minimum wage. He's fought unions. He's even suggested in a way that to be successful at his workplace, people should not go to the bathroom or eat. Make sure you're the first one in there every day and the last one to leave. Mm -hmm. Don't ever take a lunch break or go to the bathroom. You keep working. You never know when that opportunity is going to come along. The way Bloomberg speaks about manual labor seems to have this elitist tinge to it, rooted in old-fashioned ignorance. To be a farmer, you it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Bloomberg has not only made utterly racist statements on numerous occasions, he's implemented policies of racial terror to back up those sentiments. They just keep saying, oh, it's a disproportionate percentage of a particular ethnic group. That may be, but it's not a disproportionate percentage of those who witnesses and victims describe as committing the murder. In that case, incidentally, I think we disproportionately stop whites too much and minorities too little. 
Michael Bloomberg supported George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and endorsed their re-election. He backed the Iraq war, even though he had no public reason to do so. And he continues to say that he supports that decision. Last month, presidential candidate and American oligarch Michael Bloomberg told the L.A. Times that the U.S. invasion of Iraq was a mistake, but one that was made honestly by those in power. Bloomberg's statements on Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare in general, include some remarkably cold-hearted comments that boil down to, if you're old and poor, we should probably cut costs by just letting you die or wither away. You know, if you show up with prostate cancer and you're 95 years old, we should say, go and enjoy, have a nice day, live a long life. There's no cure, and you can't do it. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Society's not willing to do that yet. Bloomberg has railed against so-called entitlements, in other words, social spending or safety net programs. Let's get serious. The entitlements are going to bankrupt us, just like the pension system and healthcare is going to bankrupt corporations. Bloomberg also has made astonishingly ignorant statements about education and schools. Uh, you would cut the number of teachers in half, but you would double the compensation of them, and you would weed out all the bad ones and just have good teachers. And double the class size with a better teacher is a good deal for the students. It is clear that Michael Bloomberg is trying to buy this race. He's also trying to do everything in his power to stop Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination. And we now see Bloomberg running attack ads against Sanders with ominous music, making it seem like overwhelmingly random or anonymous social media accounts are actually official Sanders campaign statements or that they're from his campaign manager or his spokespeople rather than mostly random people on social media. Bloomberg also had the audacity to put out a press release attacking Bernie Sanders and saying he is a, quote, new bro of Donald Trump. Bloomberg was trying to play OK Boomer cute by using the Bernie bro framing. But you know what? The majority of the Bloomberg campaign statement was spent attacking observations made by senior black women in the Sanders campaign, namely Nina Turner and Brianna Joy Gray. Bloomberg has far more in common with Donald Trump than he does with ordinary people in this country on a personal and public level. He has dozens and dozens of complaints, lawsuits, non-disclosure agreements stemming from his vile and misogynistic comments about women, about women having children, about women's bodies, and complaints alleging workplace gender-based harassment. And Bloomberg, of course, won't release any of these women from their non-disclosure agreements so that their stories can be investigated. These are two men, Donald Trump and Michael Bloomberg, who speak about women in disgusting terms, who have repeated battles with women accusing them of all sorts of misconduct. But they yuck it up on the golf course. And as Bloomberg has said, they move in some of the same social circles. I just want to quickly thank patrons for a moment. These are the patrons who have gone above and beyond donating more than the regular membership, and they've been sticking with the show for months and months and months, if not years. So huge thanks to Bill M., Fred G., Sarah J., Jonathan R., Mark D., Sherwin L., Rainy B., Nejla L., Lucas C., unless you're French, maybe it's Luca, like my French nephew— 
and Reinhardt H. Thanks so much for your continued support of the show. I could not do it without you guys. As for the rest of you, here's a bit of what you've been missing out on. In my most recent bonus episode, I was joined by Amanda so that we could discuss a major announcement about something that I had invented, and I do mean invented in the truest sense of the word, meaning I had combined two pre-existing things into a new thing. Voila, invention. Uh, I'm still not ready to talk about the big news widely, so the rest of you, unfortunately, shall remain woefully ignorant on that note. Uh, That wasn't all, though. We had bonus clips and discussed how the mostly rich, usually white, moderate Democrats currently throwing a fit over not having their desires centered in these primary elections is just the latest example of how fragile those with privilege tends to be. In other words, it was a great primer for today's episode. We could really use your financial help right now. We got a lot of new members at the end of last year, it's true, but it was not enough to cover the shortfall in our ad revenue that plummeted at the same time. We've been effectively cut off from about 90% of our ads because we refused to be strong-armed into ditching our tried-and-true, plucky startup hosting service that we've had since the very beginning in favor of a service owned by a giant media conglomerate so that they could mine your data to try to serve more specific ads to you, which I think is gross. Uh, We stuck with the little guy and the data privacy, which we think is the right move long term, but we are being financially punished for it right now because we have no ads to run. So if you are interested in supporting our work and getting our bonus content, just like I described, it's available for six bucks a month on Patreon. We have higher levels for those who can give more and want to support the show, but we also have lower levels that give ad-free versions of the show for when we do have ads, and that's just two bucks a month because I want to make sure everyone knows that I appreciate any dollar amount you can afford. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is linked up right in the show notes on your device, as well as on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bestofleft. Thanks for your support. Two of the seven Democratic candidates who are considered so often the Republican, um, the uh, People's Party, are billionaires. What does this say to you, who are Running on the stage last a night? a self-described billionaire who actually probably isn't one. Um, you know, let's just stick with the physical scene that you just showed those shots of. So, because I think it's a metaphor for what I what I have called the billionaire election or the billionaire referendum that that 2020 is. So you got these seven people on stage. On two ends are actual billionaires. The two candidates in the middle, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, are candidates who have risen to prominence precisely on the platform of running against billionaires and the idea that billionaire power is excessive and is suffocating the American dream for people. Um, then you have the $1,700 to $3,200 tickets, which captures the way in which the Democratic Party is an ostrich, not understanding that we live in an age in which people are actually rising up against plutocracy. And this is the kind of 
you know, f- uh, foot fault that you don't want to make. Um, and then you have, you know, CBS is a big corporation hosting the debate. Twitter is collaborating. That's owned by a billionaire. Billionaires are the, the, the stewards, the captains of an economy that has generated so much of the rage this year that is being, uh, that is presenting itself in the election. And so this is an election in which you have to have a stand. You have to know where you stand on the question of billionaires in order to vote in this primary and in this general election. If you don't have a perspective on billionaires, you can't, you can't actually make this choice meaningfully because for very long in this country, the story that we have told about billionaires is they are like helium balloons. They're just people who happen to have drifted up from among the rest of us. That's been the story. And yes, they had more and maybe the gap was a little too high, but they were just people who drifted up. And maybe if we could get more people, a little helium and drift them up, then we'd be better off. A new story is emerging, a truer story, which is that a lot of those folks and certainly that class of people is up there because they are standing on other people's backs and they stand on people's backs by using and abusing tax havens like Bermuda. Hello, Bloomberg. Um, they stand on people's backs by profiting from uh, an economy like the financial sector that has destroyed the American dream for so many people. Hello, Michael Bloomberg. Um, they stand on people's backs by lobbying for bottle service public policy that is of private benefit to them, but of but detrimental to the public. And I think Americans are actually waking up to the fact that we have been living in this, what I call this winners take all America, in which the country is not being run for Americans. It is being run for money. I, I actually have gotten tired of the language of inequality, even though I wrote an entire book about it, multiple books about it, because I think people don't, it doesn't click with people what we're actually talking about. So if you are someone listening to this who's not, I mean, you're probably not because you're watching Democracy Now!, but someone who's not so excited about the inequality issue, think about it this way. In every year in this country and in all countries, a certain amount of future reigns on all of us. A certain amount of progress reigns on all of us. A certain amount of innovation reigns on all of us, right? Innovation, the Latin word for new stuff. And the question then becomes, when that new stuff, the future, progress reigns on us, who gets it? Who harvests the rainwater? And what has actually happened is the future has become a thing that is privately gated and enjoyed and monopolized by very few people, which means that you can be living in an age where extraordinary things are being invented. The Internet is being invented. Medical advances are happening. But if you are not in the gated community that enjoys the fruits of the future, you are stuck in 1979. And that's true as a matter of wages for many people. It's true as a matter of health access for many people. Uh, it's true as a matter of information access for many people who are listening to media that is d- distorting their minds. And I think what's at stake in 2020 is we wake up to the idea that either we are going to uh, resign ourselves to living in a country that billionaires rule, or we're going to actually muster the gumption to remind billionaires that they are living in our country. I want to go not to last night's debate, but the Las Vegas debate, the uh, the time when Mike Bloomberg, you might have called him the pinata in Nevada. Um, and this is the exchange between Senator Sanders and uh, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Um, this was moderated by MSNBC. What we need to do to deal with this grotesque level of income and wealth inequality is make sure that those people who are working, you know what, Mr. Bloomberg, wasn't you who made all that money. Maybe your workers played some role in that as well. And it is important that those workers are able to 
share the benefits. Also, when we have so many people who go to work every day and they feel not good about their jobs, they feel like cogs in a machine. I want workers to be able to sit on corporate boards as well so they can have some say over what happens to their lives. Mayor Bloomberg, you own a large company. Would you support what Senator Sanders is proposing? Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. <laughs> it's ridiculous. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. If you can respond to that, Anand Gerdadas, um, uh, and also uh, talk about when when Mike Bloomberg said, I worked hard for that money. I mean, first of all, just, you know, it's so interesting, given that this is, you know, it's an election. It's a contest about actually connecting with people. It's so interesting to me that being that rich, as Michael Bloomberg is, makes there be no one in your life who actually tells you how you come across to people. I mean, his, he has the charisma of like a large piece of cheese that ate a robot. You know, it, it, it's, it's hard to even make up how unable he is to connect to people, but he's probably just surrounded by people who are like, Oh my God, sir, you are connecting, which is part of the problem of being a billionaire. Um, that exchange was so telling. And what happens in Vegas absolutely must not stay in Vegas because what he is arguing is the 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 mon- he's not just a guy who happens to be rich running in a progressive primary. He is running as a rich guy with all the rich guy intuitions, which is I'm worth 60 billion dollars because I earned that and nobody else had any part in that. And that is an ideology that just frankly does not belong in the Democratic Party and it's just it's 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 a kind of 20th century. It's just it's old to be honest. It's just old. There's like I mean I know through my reporting, a number of billionaires who just absolutely don't think that anymore, right? That's not even cutting-edge thinking within the circle of billionaires, right? I've had billionaires text me being like, what's this guy doing, right? Like, this guy, like, let's be just clear for a second. Michael Bloomberg is making billionaires uncomfortable with his defense of billionaires. This is a true fact that I can attest from my iMessages. So I think we got to think about this notion that he's articulating. It's a notion in which his wealth is somehow independent of all the extraordinary things in society that we've all paid into from public schools to public roads to the, you know, financial regulators who allow him to build that kind of business. Um, you know, Michael Bloomberg, look, anybody watching this should feel grateful to America, but Michael Bloomberg should feel 60 billion times more grateful than anybody watching this, I right? Wa- you, like all of your lives watching this are sort of dependent, pretty dependent on America being a functioning society with nice common things. But his life is really, really dependent on those common things. Because more than anybody watching this, he really depends on Wall Street regulators doing their job. He really depends on the United States court system doing its job well. Nothing he does is possible without that. He really depends, when you're hiring that many people, on there being a widely educated, well-educated workforce. And so it feels particularly churlish when you have an obligation to be 60 billion times more grateful than the average person for public systems to denigrate them and claim that everything you made is your private prerogative that you could have done 
in any context in the world without any of these shared systems. Would you say that the billionaire's election, talking about it that way, is sort of a coded way, a coded critique of capitalism? And now, when you have Michael Bloomberg coming into the race, he won't be in South Carolina so much as the as Super Tuesday, um, he's pouring millions into taking on Bernie Sanders and trying to make this an issue about uh, socialism, uh, red-baiting him as much as possible, uh, trying to pose it as you either have me or you have Cuba. This is such an American talking point that Michael Bloomberg is engaged in that we all need to educate. First of all, you know, I think, look, I think there are some people who had a great life in the 20th century who should have considered remaining in it, right? Like, if your framework, like, if you are still running nuclear drills in your mind— Right. You may not belong in the 21st century. Like a lot of and I see it on TV all the time. Like there are people who clearly have Cold War trauma and I feel for them. But we're not actually in the Cold War anymore. Right. We're we're in just a completely different era. Right. And and just as it would have been unhelpful in the Cold War to be like talking about what we need to do in the trenches of World War One. It's just not a helpful framework for the Cold War because it's just not now. It's not particularly helpful now in 2020 to be reliving your own Cold War trauma as guidance for the United States. Michael Bloomberg is trying to prevent that, present this, you know, old American talking point that you got two choices, people. We can either be a Goldman Sachs country or we can be Maduro's Venezuela. Those are your choices. Those are your that's the whole choice. We have come to a place in America, which I find fascinating, where our understanding of gender is more fluid than our understanding of capitalism, socialism, and democracy. It's remarkable. I never would have expected that. We've made tremendous progress in understanding that it's not like men, women, nothing in between. It's complicated. People fall all kinds of places on that distribution. But capitalism and socialism, no, no, no. It's one or the other. The reality is, for any person who's actually traveled or read a book, every country in the world, with maybe a couple of exceptions, has some mix of capitalism and socialism. When you're on the highway, the thing beneath you Socialism. The things on the highway, capitalism. The cars and the trucks carrying stuff. When you are on Wall Street, the banks, capitalism. The regulators that make sure that brokers are not stealing their money, socialism. Right? When you work for 40 years at IBM, capitalism. When you retire and have Social Security and Medicare take care of you, socialism. Right? It's only, it's early in the morning. I have already in the course of this day, by eating certain things, engaged in capitalism. By taking a car here, engaged in capitalism. But I've also benefited profoundly just by 8 a.m. from socialism, from the fact that people, uh, you know, there were roads. It was nice to have roads on the way. It made a much, much faster commute. Uh, you know, all the ways in which capitalism and socialism are actually part of every hour of our lives. Let's end this ridiculous binary and have some understanding of economic fluidity. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but 
If you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. What do you make of what is happening right now, Paul Krugman, with Bernie Sanders? So far, the clear front runner, yeah. but uh, moving into South Carolina, and why that headline, Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. What you were getting at? Okay, uh, I mean, it's uh, Bernie says. He loves Denmark. I love Denmark. I think Denmark is an illustration of how decent a society can be. The Danes don't think that they're socialists. They think that they're social democrats. They don't use the word socialist. Um, and, uh, and it isn't socialism as we've always, you know, used to understand it. It's not government ownership of the means of production. It's not seizing the commanding heights of the economy. It's a really strong social safety net and a strong labor movement, all of which I support. In arguing with zombies, I have a whole chapter uh, called uh, Eek Socialism, which is about the Republican habit of playing three-card Monty. You say that you're for universal health care. They say, that's socialist. You say you're for universal child care. They say, think about how many people Stalin killed. You know, it's this, it's this crazy stuff. So... Why use the word? Why describe yourself? I think I, I think it's kind of self-indulgent to call yourself a socialist and you know give the Republicans unnecessary ammunition. We're I think probably we're we're for the same. I'm for the same po- kinds of policies. I'm for universal health care, universal child care, all of these things. Uh, why buy into the Republican effort to make this sound like something Stalin would do? Well, he calls himself a democratic socialist. Yeah, is yeah, that right? That's that's cutting it way too fine. Why use the word? Let me turn to a clip from the Democratic presidential debate in Las Vegas last week. First, we hear from Bernie Sanders, then Mike Bloomberg. What we need to do to deal with this grotesque level of income and wealth inequality is make sure that those people who are working, you know what, Mr. Bloomberg, wasn't you who made all that money. Maybe your workers played some role in that as well. And it is important that those workers are able to share the benefits. Also, when we have so many people who go to work every day and they feel not good about their jobs, they feel like cogs in a machine. I want workers to be able to sit on corporate boards as well so they can have some say over what happens to their lives. Mayor Bloomberg, you own a large company. Would you support what Senator Sanders is proposing? Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. It's ridiculous. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. So there was Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of uh, New York City, uh, going after Bernie Sanders. Um, Richard Wolf, you describe yourself as a socialist economist. Um, Respond to what both Paul Krugman says and what Bloomberg is saying here. Sure. There is no agency, neither public nor private, that defines what a socialist is. If you follow the socialist movement for the last 150 years, you would discover that it has been a contested terrain from day one. There were different interpretations and different meanings. 
Bernie Sanders is perfectly in line with one of the traditions of what socialism is. It's the government having a big role in offsetting some of the awful qualities of capitalism. But we also know that the kind of control that the government tries to operate is very difficult for it to succeed with. We once had a new deal in this country. We lost most of it because we didn't go beyond a government intervention to change the society. What Bernie Sanders represents is an awareness that it's time to have a conversation we should have had for 75 years about our capitalist system and whether we can do better. This is now a changed environment in which what was taboo in this country isn't anymore. And Bernie has already achieved the breaking of a taboo in this country to talk about socialism, its strengths and weaknesses, its different interpretations, and compare them to capitalism, rather than running away because nasty conservatives call us various names. That's not a profound reason. And for the young people of this country, it doesn't carry much weight anyway. So I welcome the opening that Bernie achieves that we can talk about socialism, its different interpretations, and why we ought to explore them a lot more than we've been able to under the taboo of the last 75 years. Paul Kretman. I actually agree that a lot of young people have reacted. I mean, we have a uh, a 60-year-long campaign of equating any attempt to make American lives better with socialism, and a fair number of young people have said, well, in that case, I'm a socialist. The trouble is, you're not going to win this election without a fair number of old people, too. And um, uh, it just seems to me, that, again, it's self-indulgent to go down this route. I wish he wouldn't. I mean, if, if Sanders is the nominee, then Democrats are going to have to, you know, get behind him. And people like me are going to end up writing lots of things saying, you know, don't be scared. Yes, he uses the word socialist, but he doesn't actually mean what, you, what Republicans uh, think, uh, want you to think he means. But, you know, what, who needed this, uh, this, this extra thing? So the— um, I'm not sure that this is—I'm not sure I quite see what the point is. I mean, it seems to me that, that there's—to to make the argument that says, I want social justice, I want a strong government safety net, I want worker empowerment, you can say all of those things without— having to, you know, give ammunition to people who want to make it, make you sound like Stalin. So, um, I mean, it, as, it, I'm going to be spending, I expect, I expect Sanders will probably be the nominee, and I expect to spend a lot of, uh, of the next year uh, saying, look, he's really talking about Denmark, not Venezuela, um, but I shouldn't have to be doing that. Richard? I'm proud to be part of the socialist tradition, and I understand Paul's difficulty. He's having to defend now a centrism that's being rejected by a large number of people. The stunning reality is that the majority of young people, at least age 35 and under, no longer think that socialism is a bad word, and they are immune to that. And the young people are the future of this country, which the older people know, too. And they are being asked to question, the older ones, by the younger ones, why this taboo, why we couldn't talk about socialism, why we can't embrace a socialism. And on electability, my goodness, if we've seen anything in the last few years, we've seen the center, whether it's in Europe or this country, falling away, disappearing, center left, center right, for the extremes on the right, and now an extreme on the left. 
I don't find that frightening. I understand people who are centrists do, but I welcome that we can have an honest debate in this country. And there's much in the socialist tradition that is well worth keeping. There are lessons of what we should do, just like there are lessons of what we shouldn't do, which is true for capitalism as well. So we're opening things up. And I think when it comes to electability, we have as much to argue that this is the way forward as anyone on the other side. By the way, I don't think I don't think the people who send me hate mail, and I am the king of hate mail, uh, think that I'm a centrist. Right? I'm for universal health care. I'm for deficit spending on infrastructure. I'm for universal child care. Uh, if that's centrism, then you know, let, let's let's have it. By that standard, Denmark is centrist. Right. Americans trust that a democratic socialist president will not give authoritarians a free pass. I have opposed authoritarianism all over the world, and I was really amazed at what Mayor Bloomberg just said a moment ago. He said that the Chinese government is responsive to the Politburo. But who the hell is the Politburo responsive to? Who elects the Politburo? You got a real dictatorship there? Of course you have a dictatorship in Cuba. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba that Cuba made progress on education. Yes, I think. Really? <clears throat> really? Yes, Literacy programs no are bad. What Barack Obama Barack said Obama is they made great progress on education well, and health care. That was Barack Obama. I talked to Barack Obama. Excuse me. Occasionally, it might be good idea to be honest about American foreign policy. And that includes the fact that America has overthrown governments all over the world, in Chile, in Guatemala, in Iran, and when dictatorships, whether it is the Chinese or the Cubans, do something good, you acknowledge that. Hi, Mr. But you don't have trade right. love letters with President them. This Biden is 2020. There are a few patterns in the media and political discourse in this country that I want to take a few moments to address. And they have to do with the way that the Bernie Sanders campaign is discussed on the airwaves of corporate media outlets and publications, as well as among the elite class of the Democratic Party establishment, and also among some of the so-called never-Trump Republicans who have made an alliance with these Democratic elites. In short, what we are witnessing is the beginnings of the cataclysmic meltdown that will occur in various sectors of the U.S. political class, elite class in the United States, if Bernie Sanders wins the majority of delegates in the Democratic primary. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. Now, it has unfortunately become very low-hanging fruit to look at MSNBC's coverage of this primary for a sense of how out of touch, delusional, and frankly, demoralized the Democratic establishment and its pundits are. But it really is something to behold. It's obvious these other candidates have not sufficiently talked about him. It's obvious that he's never been vetted in the press. I've, I've not seen the four-part series in the New York Times or the Washington Post or NBC News or anything else. And then you have this shameless class of neocons 
lifelong right-wing Republicans, so-called conservative pundits who call themselves the never-Trumpers. They have been in this weird alliance with the MSNBC-DNC crowd in the three years of Donald Trump. And now they are all offering their unsolicited and unwanted panic-addled advice for what Democratic voters should do and how urgent it is that they stop Bernie Sanders. This tweet from never-Trumper-in-chief Bill Kristol calling Democratic members of Congress, governors, and other leaders, could you perhaps say in public what you say in private, that a Sanders nomination would be a disaster for the party and that uh, were he, were he to win, happen to win, his presidency would be bad for the country? I'm sorry, but William Crystal, Max Boot, David Frum, all of these other neocons have no standing whatsoever to pretend to tell working people, people struggling for economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, against wars of aggression. They have no standing whatsoever to tell any of those people who they should be supporting in the race for the Democratic nomination. In fact, I would say that these people should not be able to go out in public without being asked repeatedly about their support for all of the civilian lives across the globe that have been lost because of the wars that they promoted and enabled. These people are dangerous charlatans, and it is shameful that some Democrats and media establishment figures so willingly ignored the atrocious careers of these people and embraced them as allies. These are, for the most part, Cold War armchair cowboys who do not have the best interests of the vast majority of Americans or the world at heart. They have spent their entire public lives on the wrong side of history. As a United States senator, I do understand the power of the corporate elite and the 1%. Bernie, 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 Bernie. They have, they have literally unlimited amounts of money. They have significant control over the media, over our economy, and over the political life of this country. But at the end of the day, the 1% is 1%. Bernie Sanders has been in opposition his entire political career. He has run for election repeatedly, taken on major corporate and political forces. He has been vetted. The campaign of Hillary Clinton spent substantial resources on so-called opposition research against Bernie Sanders and produced absolutely nothing that could effectively tar Sanders. One of the wealthiest people on earth, Michael Bloomberg, is right now spending mega millions trying to smear Bernie Sanders. And it's a bit ironic and frankly nuts that Bloomberg, with all of his heinous, well-documented skeletons that are not in the closet but are literally walking around in public, for him to pretend to be the veteran-chief of Bernie Sanders? Here's the fact. If there was any real dirt, I mean consequential facts, about Bernie Sanders— they would have already been reported on, leaked, weaponized. And so what do we have now? Red baiting. This was predictable, and it was definitely part of the Clinton attack on Sanders back in the 2016 campaign. question you were asking Senator Sanders, I think in that same uh, interview, he praised what he called the revolution of values in Cuba and talked about how people were working for the common good, not for themselves. I just couldn't disagree more. You know, if the values are that you oppress people 
you disappear people, you imprison people, even kill people for expressing their opinions, for expressing freedom of speech. That is not the kind of revolution of values that I ever want to see. Now, once again, this red baiting is emerging as a central tactic that is being used by Democratic Party elites and by Bloomberg, Joe Biden, yes, Pete Buttigieg, and by Republicans and Donald Trump to attack him. There is this alliance now between the GOP and the Democratic establishment to use red scare tactics against Bernie Sanders. This is the central strategy of the bipartisan coalition opposing Bernie Sanders, McCarthyism. But the problem is the real winner last night, I believe, was Putin. I mean, we're going to have the most divisive election if Bernie is the nominee. We are going to see two very, very angry people representing two very different extremes of their parties. And I think that helps make America more chaotic. It makes us more divisive. And I think the one that gets advantaged by that is Russia. You may not know it by watching major television networks these days, but Bernie Sanders does not go around the country campaigning against the murderous U.S. foreign policy of the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, or discussing Cuba's literacy program from the early 1960s. He's not wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt at his rallies. No, it's the corporate media, some of Sanders' Democratic opponents, and elite Democratic establishment figures, the Republicans, and journalists who are harping on these issues. Why are we talking about Cuba and its literacy program? Is it because Bernie Sanders is always referencing it in his campaign speeches and rallies? No, we're discussing it because that is what McCarthyite corporate power wants to discuss in a dishonest, out-of-context effort to smear Bernie Sanders. And by the way, isn't it interesting how these political forces are intensifying these attacks after Sanders' historic win in Nevada, which was propelled by the Latinx vote? Part of what is happening right now is most definitely an effort to weaponize Cuban Americans for partisan political smear purposes ahead of Super Tuesday, where large numbers of Latinx people will be voting. The Democratic Party has three camps right now. Uh, there are three different camps that offer three very different visions for how to beat Donald Trump. There's what we call the progressive wing, led by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who believe that people should be able to have health care and education. A moderate wing, uh, represented by candidates like Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar, who believe that everyone should have health care and education, but also debt. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, what we would describe as the competent fascist wing, uh, led by Mike Bloomberg, um, aka George Bush era Republicans. And, uh, Bloomberg is, has been a Republican until recently, uh, has a horrible record on civil liberties, uh, referred to transgender people as it, uh, has 64 sexual harassment cases against him. And looking at Bloomberg made me realize that literally the best thing about Donald Trump is that he's a fucking idiot uh, <laughs> and, that, and that how terrifying would it be to have someone with the same politics but who was smart um so now 
Sanders won the most votes in the primary in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. And so the Democratic uh, centrist uh, establishment are freaking out. Nate Silver, who the white people uh, call the Oracle at Delphi, uh, say that as, as of last week, uh, Bernie Sanders is the front runner and uh, has the highest chance of winning the nomination, which means so we're, we've been sort of bracing for a onslaught of anti-Semitism and anti-communism. Um, now, the thing you should know about the Democratic primary process is that if you were an idiot, you would think that the person with the most votes wins the election. But that's <laughs> not the greatness of America. Uh, we take the number of votes from people and then feed them into a sausage grinder <laughs> to spit out a bunch of delegates along with Fatback and Gristle. And whoever has the majority of delegates win, uh, but the delegates are not proportional. So you have to get to 15% of the vote to be considered viable, is the term, like an unwanted pregnancy, <laughs> to get any delegates at all. But then wait, it gets worse. In Nevada, if there's a tie in the caucus, then the winner is picked by drawing cards, and the high card wins. Uh, this is uh, true. So uh, skip ahead in your mind uh, several years into the future. You're a child living in Iran. It's year 28 of the U.S.-Iran war, started by President <laughs> Joe Biden, who at this point is just talking hair plugs in a jar. And... <laughs> You say to your mother, Mommy, why did the American people want to blow us up? And she says, sweetheart, they didn't, but his supporters drew a queen of spades <laughs> over the Bernie Sanders jack of diamonds in Sparks, Nevada, and that's why we're getting droned right now. <laughs> and then you start crying forever. Um, so that's uh, other ways that uh, the Democratic Party picks the winners. Um uh, through the caucus system include magic eight ball, spin the bottle, musical chairs, dance off, rap battle, darts, pie eating contest, and seeing who can spit the furthest. Um, so <laughs> that's what's happening. Um, so there's also like, so now everybody's trying to attack Sanders for being, uh, too radical and unelectable and whatnot. There's like 5,000 articles a minute, uh, that where they say he seems too angry and too loud and he points a lot, which I <laughs> interpret as basically them saying that he's too Jewish, um, <laughs> to be president. Uh, and so according, if you watch MSNBC, the message you take away is that the only thing worse than putting children in cages is being visibly upset about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're attacking him for being a communist. Uh, and so like this week, there was this whole thing about something that Fidel, uh, that Sanders said about Fidel Castro, that he was, that Sanders said something nice about the literacy programs in Cuba. And people say that this caused Bernie Sanders to lose Florida. Uh, and we'll see, obviously, but never in my wildest dreams would I have expected that the defining issue of the 2020 American presidential election was whether the fact that 700,000 Cuban peasants learned to read in 1961 <laughs> was good or bad. Um, but apparently we still need to debate that. Um, so... And so it's like they just it's like they want a return to normalcy. They want they they are scared of Bernie Sanders because they want a return to calm. Uh, they want to go back to before Trump. And uh, and I think that makes sense. I guess it's fair uh, that so if you you know that they want they hope that there's a possibility that Sanders doesn't win. Elizabeth Warren doesn't win. And uh, and you just get to look across a world of flooding cities and wildfires and ancient diseases thawing out of glaciers that are melting, drought, food shortages, mass death from particulate inhalation and say, 
Uh, at least some Bernie Sanders supporters were mean on the internet and we stopped them, so this is all worth it. Uh, so that is the state of American democracy today. We've just heard clips today, starting with Late Night with Seth Meyers, giving a pretty thorough rundown of the media freakout after Bernie won Nevada. Counterspin gave just a bit more coverage to some embarrassing journalistic choices the media has made about covering Bernie. Intercepted went over Bloomberg's record, which was pretty devastating. Democracy Now! spoke with Anand Garudadas about the need for billionaire literacy to make sense of this election. And I want to note that Anand is the author of Winner Take All, the Elite Charade of Changing the World. We last heard from him last summer during our two-part series on how big philanthropy actually strangles progressive change rather than supporting it, as we are led to believe, and how philanthropy's real reason for existence is to help perpetuate unregulated capitalism. Those are episodes 1284 and 1285, a couple of my favorites, just in case you want to check those out. Finishing up, we then heard Democracy Now! host a debate about socialism between Paul Krugman and Richard Wolff. Intercepted broke down the alliance between establishment Democrats and never-Trump conservatives to red-bait Bernie Sanders. And finally, we just heard The Bugle explain the current state of American politics in a more accurate way than it's possible to hear from most media outlets. Members are going to be hearing more about how Bloomberg has been able to silence his critics with promises of financial support for their causes, unsurprising, and a look at the real American history of support for dictators and fascists behind the red-baiting attacks on Sanders. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. Jeff and Charlotte calling. I'm calling you in response to the comment from James from Sacramento. And I will let you know that I totally agree with you, James, in Sacramento. And I want to make an announcement to all people who are running for president right now and the supporters. Candidates, please get a message going. The message is not, I could beat Trump. People who, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, why do you want to? What do you want to do? What is your agenda? You have to identify a message. That's what the candidates have to do. Again, because if your purpose of running is because I could beat Trump, you are playing right into Donald Trump's playing book. He loves it to be about him. And this is one more time where everything would be about him. You saw Hillary and her supporters fall into that category when they did the love Trump's hate baloney. That is total BS because you repeated his name in your own message, which does not support anything. Also, 
if you ever look throughout history, whenever you create a war on something or you go against, you create failure. It does not work to go against. Let's get the message, whoever the candidate is, and Democrats, let's, lie, let's rally behind our candidate. Thank you very much. Hey, man, uh, I agree with you. I'd rather vote for Biden than Trump. But if uh, Bernie goes in to, and he has more delegates than any other candidate and they still find a way to give it to the mainstream corporatist Democrat, then what the hell are we supposed to do to teach these guys that you can't do that? Um, I think Bernie got screwed over by Hillary and the DNC last time. And if he gets screwed over again, it's like, I understand conservatives doing everything they can to hold him back, but the Democrats should at least listen to the people. And it just drives me crazy. And I don't know what to do because if we still end up having to vote for Biden and they're getting their way again, I don't know. And you can't say, well, this is Trump and it's a different stance and we got to, or it's a different instance and we can't let this person take over because we would have said the same damn thing about George W. Bush and we would have said the same damn thing about Reagan. It's always at threat level midnight, you know. It's always the worst case scenario when it's the Republican candidate. So they'll just use that excuse over and over again. Anyway, thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So in response to the message we just heard, what do we do if Bernie is screwed out of the election at the convention? My answer is the same thing we do every day. We remember that democracy doesn't only happen on election day. We are not satisfied with people who remain totally disengaged and then vote every couple of years and think of themselves as responsible citizens participating in democracy, right? So election day is just one day. It's different than others, but it's just one day. We act on that day in the most strategic way we can, just like we do on every other day. So I, I say that election days are for voting, and voting comes with a strategy, and other days are for other things, like all kinds of activism and advocacy and agitating and all of those. So um, th there was a, a no, either another listener or the same listener who commented on this same topic uh, by text on Patreon, so I'll, I'll bring that in. As I said, it may very well be the same person. I'm not sure. So the the listener commenting on Patreon says, uh, "Should this scenario come to pass, meaning Bernie losing after a brokered convention, uh, having gone in with a plurality of votes, does this affect the vote blue no matter who calculation? What do we as progressives do if both?" taking over the Democratic Party and starting a third party seem to both yield the same results in the end. And my response to that is that I would not call 
this scenario the same result. I don't think it's the same as failing to launch a new party, and I don't even think it's the same this hypothetical if Bernie were to lose after the convention. I don't think it would be the same as the 2016 result. It looks the same on its face, so short term, it is very, very similar, but how it has all come about demonstrates huge shifts below the surface. There was no expectation whatsoever of being able to have a progressive takeover in 2016, but that set the stage for 2020 where Bernie is in the lead and it is basically his election to lose, possibly at the hands of you know, underhanded dirty tricks or just the undemocratic structure of the Democratic Party and so forth. But Bernie being in the lead and having the support of a hugely diverse coalition is a vision of the future. That coalition may carry Bernie to victory this year, and it may not, but that coalition will definitely carry someone to victory at some point in the near future. And that is going to look very different than the establishment politics we've been dealing with for decades. Launching a new party, on the other hand, will continue to be a near 0% possibility for the foreseeable future. And it is not fair or accurate to say that, oh, it's only not possible because people don't believe it's possible, and if you just believed it, then it would work. That's failing to understand the structural forces keeping that possibility from happening. So to compare, like, if establishment Democrats' stranglehold on power makes it as difficult for Bernie to win the nomination as it is to climb Mount Everest, well, then the barriers to starting a new party and being successful are as difficult as jumping to the summit of Mount Everest in a single bound. They are not comparable. The only solution is to change the structural barriers to third parties in order for that to even be an option to be considered. Now, as for the perpetual panic of, oh, the Republican candidate is our worst nightmare, unfortunately, that's not fake. That's a result of polarization in our politics. So, like, for instance, if uh, if, if the parties were closer together ideologically, like, say, the, the GOP believed in climate change but just wanted to fight it slightly differently, well, then it wouldn't be nearly as devastating as electing people who are basically promising to destroy the world as fast as possible. That's polarization. That's not party propaganda. So... At a moment in time when we are polarized, it really is as terrible as people say it is for Republicans to be elected. I, I wish that wasn't the case. That's going to require a whole additional conversation about how to depolarize politics by, I would say, uh, you know, in part re-engineering our gerrymandering system, which has put polarization on overdrive and a handful of other things that that structurally speaking our politics are geared toward polarization and we need to undo those structures so that our politics can kind of move back into a general consensus about you know facts about the world or what would be good generally and then we could just debate over how to get those things done um that's not where we are right now Partisanship, the, the, the hyper partisanship and polarization 
un- unfortunately, it's it's real. That's that's just not party propaganda. So to finally answer the question, what do we do on election day if you know Bernie loses and we get a really moderate uh, Democrat in there and everyone's feeling really depressed about that? Well, do the thing that is strategically the best thing to do to make either the most good or the least bad thing happen. That's my strategy all the time. That's my strategy now. That's my strategy on every non-election day. That's still my strategy on election election day. No one has been able to argue effectively against it, so I'm going to stick with that until someone does. To be clear, there are arguments against it. There's the accelerationist argument that says, if things are moderately bad, then if we accelerate the badness and make things even worse, then that can create a, a sort of whiplash effect and we can bounce back and have a revolution and change things dramatically. That tends to not go well. And if it doesn't work out as you predict, well, then it, it you know makes you look real bad because then all you've done is facilitate devolution into authoritarianism or fascism or you've helped you know people be injured or killed along the way because of the neglect of a conservative government which is not like a a wild out there thing for me to say there are statistics that say that when conservative governments are in power more people die there is more violence this is uh, ha- has been demonstrated and follows logic so um the the accelerationist idea i am not in favor of i'm not a fan of it uh, some people argue it but uh not very much i haven't heard that argument much since you know, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, people were still making those arguments. But we're not there yet. For the time being, let's focus on the primary and try to avoid those uh, those potentially um, <laughs> terrible choices that we will have to make uh, in, in a few months if things don't go well. And the last note on this, which is what I want to have be the last note in every episode through the election, just remember, if you want to move toward a more just society— Vote with the most vulnerable communities and remind everyone else to do the same. Period. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now finally, to wrap up with some news by Limerick, obviously, not just the election cycle, but the the news and the media, it's going so fast, I can't possibly uh, keep up with it. It's, It's a fool's errand to try to 
report contemporaneously on on the election and all the controversies surrounding it. So you may have already heard that uh, Chris Matthews, featured prominently in today's show, uh, just announced his retirement from MSNBC. Effective immediately, he was, I, I assume, just marched out of the building midway through his show. And this is coming on the heels of inappropriate conduct accusations that have followed him for years and, you know, sexist remarks. Uh, recently, he mixed up two black politicians. He, as you heard, compared Bernie to invading Germans, intimated that he worried Bernie may be secretly the leader of a death squad that would like to see him assassinated in Central Park. I mean, he's really been on a roll lately. So at Liberix writes on Twitter, his prevalence taking a dive, Chris Matthews resigned tonight live, thus calling it quits right there where he sits, just like Nazis in May 45. 